Well, thank you so much for the card. I haven't seen it yet, so if you wrote anything nasty, I won't see it until the end of the service, but thank you all the same. No, thank you so much for the, for the card. We feel, we feel like we're at home when we're around you guys. And uh, I've mentioned this before. Uh, you know, when I, when I get the opportunity to go and speak at, at other churches and other pulpits and at conferences, uh, I always am thankful for the opportunity, but there's always a part of me that says, yeah, but that's not the, that's not the pulpit back at Lewis and Clark. So I, I feel like I'm at home here, so thank you very much and very appreciative of you and uh, your testimony and your love for the Lord as well. Uh, also, uh, it's good to have Salo with us, one of our missionaries there with CEF in Portland. So if you're not familiar with CEF or Portland or Sela or all three, she's there. So you could talk to her after the service. Sela, raise your hand for all those who don't know you. There you go. So, well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we will uh, we'll spend some time in the book of Proverbs this morning. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We just ask that as we spend time in your word, your spirit would be working on our heart, causing us to see our sin, repent of our sin, to, that your spirit would work on our heart to encourage us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We're very thankful that you who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day that we see your son again. And we're very, very thankful for that. We're very thankful for this church body that you've placed us in. We're very thankful that we live at this time, at this place, and we're very thankful for Jesus. We just ask your blessing on this time and uh, that we may learn from your word. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. This morning, uh, please turn your attention to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 31. Just allow me to to read the portion here from going all the way down to chapter 17, verse 6. Notice what it says. It says, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Chapter 17, better is a dry morsel with quietness and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in his inheritance among the brothers. The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked words, or wicked lips, excuse me, and a liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of, an old, of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. In this section, we're going to talk briefly, because we could spend a lot of time in some of these principles here, 
But we're going to talk briefly this morning about the benefits of being righteous. I think that's what Solomon is doing here. He's describing in these verses the benefit of what does it look like when you're righteous. Here's the benefits that come from righteousness. Here's the benefits that come from wisdom. Here's the benefits that come from discernment. The, here's, the, here's why it's beneficial to live for the Lord. And this morning, I want to try to show you seven of them. There's going to be more benefits. Obviously, this is not exhaustive, and obviously we can look at this text, and I'm sure we can find more, but I just want to point out seven. So go with me to verse 31 of chapter 16 to see the first one. The first benefit, in my mind, of wisdom and of righteousness, specifically, is the sense of honor. Notice, notice what it says in 31. It says, a gray head is a crown of glory. Now, when it says a gray head, this isn't talking about somebody who just has an ashy complexion. This is referring to somebody who has, well, it might actually, because it it speaks about gray hair. That's really the phrase here, gray hair. Speaks of old age. So notice what it says. It says old age, gray hair, Notice is a crown. A crown is a, is, has the symbol and the idea of power, ha, has the idea of honor. And then it says it's a crown of glory, which has this idea of even more honor and, and is something that is attractive. And so in a sense, we could say old age is an honor. It's an honor for old age. But that's not exactly what Solomon is saying here, right? Just because somebody is has more years than others. If you catch my drift, I'm not saying anybody in this room is old, but there's the sense that somebody who's older in age doesn't necessarily mean that that's an honorable thing. Here Solomon is saying, gray hair is a crown of glory. And then notice the second part, it is found in the way of righteousness. So he's saying particularly when somebody has a long life filled with righteous living, and they have gray hair, a long life of that righteous living, it's an incredible honor. It's an incredible honor to have a long life filled with righteousness. I think that's incredible, by the way. I think of this as as a younger person. Um, A couple months ago, I saw my first gray hair. So I claim every part of that gray hair for this verse. No, as a younger person... I look at this verse, and this verse is very encouraging to me in the sense that it teaches me there's a lot of things in this world that I might think is an honorable pursuit, something worthy going after, something that will bring uh, great honor, great glory. It's worth giving my life to. But this verse kind of cuts through all of that and, and gets right down to brass tacks and says, look, no, the thing that's the most important The thing that brings the most honor, the thing that's honorable is a long life of righteousness. Pursue righteousness. That's important. That's an important thing. That's something that needs to be in your life. And so as a young person, I look at this verse and go, yes. This kind of cuts through all of that and points me to one specific thing. It points me to the specific thing of righteousness is needed in my life. I imagine uh, if you've led a longer life and you've had righteousness in your life this verse is probably an incredible comfort to you saying yeah i might i might have sacrificed a lot of things for earthly glory but i pursued righteousness 
and, and this, this passage, the principle here is that you've chose the more honorable pursuit, right? You, you, you chose the right thing. You, you, might have for, you, you might have left some of those other things behind, but you chose the thing which was better. And so it's meant to encourage, it's meant to cause us to strive for righteousness, that it, it's honorable to be righteous. I, I was also thinking this morning, why, why write this, right? Why, why write a proverb like this? Why does Solomon have to constantly talk about things like this over and over and over again? And, and, and I would say, one, yes, it's to promote. Yes, it is to encourage us to live righteously. Yes, it's here to show the benefit of righteousness. Uh, but it also is because I think we're tempted often to not pursue righteousness, to leave the way of righteousness in hopes that we might gain glory through another way. That temptation is real for everyone. It's not just a temptation for a young person. This is a, this is a temptation that, that is for everyone. It's easy for us to walk off the path of righteousness that's outlined in the word of God and go our own way, thinking that if I go my own way, this is going to be good and beneficial and attractive to others. This is what I want to do. And this, this, this proverb is like, a, is like a warning light, right, on the dashboard. And it's saying, no, stop. You have to realize that the pursuit of righteousness, that is an honorable pursuit and a rewarding life to have and to lead. So the first benefit of a righteous life is this honor that comes from living a righteous life, right? Now notice the next verse in verse 32, there's another honor, another benefit, excuse me. Notice what he says, he says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Now, you see that phrase when it says, he who is slow to anger. This is our, the image that we've seen numerous times through the book of Proverbs, which means long nose. That's literally what it is, long nose. And so it literally reads, he who has a long nose is better than, uh, than the mighty. We understand that long nose to mean it's a long time before hot air comes out of the nostrils, right? In the ancient world, anger was seen here when the nostrils flare, right? Think of those old Looney Tune commercials when the bull gets mad, steam's coming out of his nose. That's the image that he wants. And so the person that it takes a long time for steam to come out of their nostrils, it takes a long time for their nostrils to flare, the idea is that they're patient people. That patience is better than the mighty. This word for mighty has two meanings, two implications. It either is speaking of somebody who is mighty in battle, or it's speaking of somebody who has political power. Sometimes they're both, right? And so here it's, it's better to be patient than to have political and military power. We might not necessarily think that. I think the modern American church struggles with that concept, right? I'm sure that there's a lot of people that say, no, military, political power, that would, that's better than me having patience. It's okay for me to yell at the president as long as the right president gets in. This passage would say, nope. It's far better for you to be patient than to have political power. 
right? This is a better thing. This, this is better. It's better to be patient. And then notice what he says next. He says, he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Think of that. How much power and might and control do you need to capture a city? It's far better that you have self-control. You're stronger than a person who captures a city if you have self-control. Now, I wish we could just turn a switch that that said self-control, and we flip it, and all of a sudden we are able to control all of our emotions, and we have self-control. I wish that was the case, but that's not the case. In fact, it is is something that you and I cannot produce. We can't be self-controlled. We can't, right? We learned that in the book of Galatians, right? Let's go there, Galatians 5. Keep your finger here, but Galatians 5. I would like to just preach the whole text again, but just for the sake of time, let's go to verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, notice, patience. So you can't even be patient apart from the work of the Spirit. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the idea is, the only way that you can have patience The only way that you can have self-control is if you're yielding to the power of the Spirit. That's it. If we want to be patient, long-suffering, self-controlled people, that is something that is produced by the Spirit. When we're yielding to Him, we are then self-controlled. So we can look at this text as Christians on this side of the cross, and we can look at a passage that was written on the other side of the cross, and we could say, yes, it is, it is a, a powerful thing for somebody to be able to control themselves. Self-control is a, we can't do it. It's almost impossible for anyone to do it. So, of course, the one that can do that is far more powerful than the one that can subdue a city. And we come to find that that can only be happen through the power of the Spirit after we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Yielding to the Spirit. So, in this sense, we could say, yeah, there is the, the benefit of righteousness is this incredible strength. But I, I would say that even that, that righteousness, which is exhibiting itself, is not really necessarily our righteousness, right? It's the righteousness of Christ, it's the work of the Spirit, and that's what the Spirit's producing in us. As we're saying yes to what is right, no to what is wrong, the fruit that's produced is the work of the Spirit on our heart as we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's transforming us and changing us. That's his fruit. So this, this, is, a, this, is, a, this is an example of somebody who is yielding to the Spirit, who's being transformed by the Spirit, and they're able to have this righteous life where they are patient and they have self-control. Now there's another benefit. Notice in verse 33 says the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the lord so when we first look at this i think a lot of us are saying what's the word lot mean well first of all we don't necessarily know what a lot is we know a lot but we don't know a lot about lots uh but it is some sort of dice some sort of thing some sort of object that's used and it was specifically used to determine the will of god okay 
so it's much more than just somebody playing dice in church. This is, this is a specific thing that was used to determine God's will. In fact, it's, it's used numerous times in the Old Testament. So, for example, uh, every year when they would pick the scapegoat, right, the one that they would put their, they, they would lay their hands on and that would bear the sins of the nation and they would chase it out, guess how that goat got picked? You would cast lots, okay? Uh, Remember when the Israelites went into the land and how do we know where they got the different land portions? Guess how they came up with that? They cast lots. In fact, even in Judges 20, when they were determining the allotment of things that should be distributed to families, guess how they determined that? Through lots. Uh, in First Chronicles and even in Nehemiah, when the priests, their order of when they would serve and what job they would have, guess how they came up with that? They cast lots. Uh, there's several times where they're trying to determine who was the perpetrator in a crime. Guess how they found out? They cast lots. You find that out in Joshua. There's one instance in the New Testament that I know of that, where they cast lots. That's when the disciples were seeing who replaces Judas Iscariot and the lots fell to Matthias. That seems to be the last time in the Bible that you see the casting of lots And I would say that in the Old Testament, before Jesus, that was a sanctioned way of determining the will of God. You would have these lots, whatever they were, whether they were dice or things you would throw, you would have in a cup and shake, or you would throw in your hand, whatever that means, that was a bona fide way of determining God's will. Until Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a major turning point and needs to be a, a... a bookmark in our thinking of redemptive history. So before Acts chapter 2, which we call the day of Pentecost, that's where the Holy Spirit fell and then permanently dwelt in believers, and he was the guide, uh, the teacher of the church. Before that, lots were needed to determine the will of God. Now, after the day of Pentecost, after Christ, now we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the word. And this is how the Holy Spirit works in our heart. As we read the word, as we're trying to ascertain the correct interpretation, the Holy Spirit teaches us, reveals to us how to apply that truth to us and to our situations. He helps us understand this book and the truths that are here and apply them to our life. I don't need lots anymore. I don't need that stuff. I have the Holy Spirit. That's far better, far superior But that does not diminish the fact that in the Old Testament, they used lots. And so for our purposes here, we're going to principalize this, not saying you should go out and buy dice and throw dice and figure out what God's will is by shaking a magic eight ball. That's not how this is going to work. This is speaking of people who are wise know how to find the will of God and determine the will of God for their life. That's really what a lot does. And for us as believers... We need to know how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to come up with theological conclusions, how to come up with appropriate applications and be able to apply those principles to our lives that are going on right now. The Holy Spirit helps us in those things, but you still need to know some of those rudiments. So for us today, this is how we determine God's will, through the study of the scriptures. A wise person knows that. A righteous person knows how to do those things. 
A righteous person is constantly doing those things all the time. A righteous person just doesn't do this on Sunday. I'll let the pastor do all my interpreting for me, all the applying for me, and then I'll just try to live that out. No, a righteous person is constantly studying, constantly applying. So here, notice the, ca- the lot is cast into the lap. A wise person understands that this is, this is trying to ascertain the will of God. And it, it may seem, it may seem to those who are not righteous, to those who are not wise, to those who are not discerning, when you watch somebody who is trying to figure out God's will using lots in the Old Testament, that it looks rather arbitrary, right? You're throwing something into your lap. This is a, this is a scientific thing. This isn't some sort of supernatural thing, right? It's rolling out of your hand a certain way and all these different parts are hitting other parts and they're landing a certain way because of all the stuff it's hitting. It seems like an arbitrary way of determining God's will. But Solomon says in the case of lots here, it's every decision is from the Lord. Meaning that this is a bona fide way of understanding God's will. This is not some arbitrary means. This is God giving decisions that he expects his people to follow. He is revealing to them his will and expecting them to live out his will. The same is for us when we see it in the scriptures. When when I study the scriptures and I see a principle in the scriptures, God expects me to live out that principle. When he gives a command in scriptures in the New Testament, he expects us to do those things. We, We can't just arbitrarily go, well, that was written at a different time different circumstances. I don't necessarily have to listen to that one. That was just a cultural thing. It's an arbitrary thing for me. Really, I should just only listen to one command, and that's the command I like the most. For us as believers, there is no exceptions. When it comes to the New Testament, those principles are ironclad, right? Those commands are ironclad. God expects us to live according to those principles and those commands. He expects us to keep the main things the main thing. I, once again, I, I just, I just am so very thankful for this church body. Um, listening to, to other pastors around the country and other churches around the country, uh, li- listening to, to some of the, the fights that they've had during the past 18 months, and, and I, they say, Caleb, how, did, how, did, how does your church handle those types of fights? And I... I can genuinely say we haven't really had those types of fights. I mean, we've talked about stuff that they talked about, but not to the point where people are like, I'm never coming back here again. There's been a sense of love. I think that's following this principle. God's word says that we should love one another, even if there's a difference of opinion. Amen. We're going to do that. Great. That's, that's what the church is supposed to do. We're not all supposed to agree on everything. We can't. I don't even agree with myself from week to week. I can't expect you to agree with me all the time. But I am supposed to love you. I am supposed to seek for your edification, you becoming more like Christ. I feel like this church body has done this. I feel like you've done this. It's been an incredible honor to watch this as you've been walking by the power of the Spirit. Not saying that you're sinless, but, but, but saying you have taken this serious. And I applaud you. Don't, let's, let's not stop this. Let's continue to take these things serious. To still stay focused on the Lord, to stay focused on the gospel, focus on the things that really matter, and, and not, really, not really be uh, uh, discombobulated with 
other things of, of real no importance. Be, because we understand this comes from God. This book is written from God. There's a lot of other books that have been written and a lot of other documents that have been written. They come from man. They do not hold the same authority as this book does. This book is the book we follow. All right, so that's the third benefit of knowing God's will. That's a real benefit, by the way. Think about it. Before you knew God, did you know his will? Did you even care? Think, think about the, the benefit of knowing the types of things that God wants you to do in your life. Saying, this is God's will for my life. That's an incredible, incredible thing to have, right? Incredible security of knowing this is what God wants me to do. I know I'm doing what he wants me to do. Think about this. Knowing how to find that is also an incredible, incredible thing. That's a benefit of righteousness. Now, there's another one. Go with me to 17.1. There's another benefit of righteousness. You ready? It's a peaceful house. We're about ready to have Thanksgiving. I'm sure many of us will be quoting this verse during Thanksgiving when family comes over. Man, it would be better to have dry turkey. Right? The word for morsel here is bread, uh, dry, dry meat. Uh, it's better to have that and quietness with it, literally peace, no fighting. It's better to have a really bad dry meal and everybody be at peace, right? Isn't that great? Would that be great? H- how is this achieved? Is this achieved just because we just don't talk about things? This is achieved because people are striving for righteousness. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. That, that's, a, that's a product of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. This is a product of the Holy Spirit and of the gospel lived out. It's better to have a, a bad meal, a dry meal, a burnt offering of a meal, but with peace. Then notice what it says next. Then a house full of feasting with strife. Now this word for feasting is kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, it, it, it literally is the word for sacrifice. And you would go, well, how do you get feasting out of sacrifice? Well, uh, if you were to read the book of Leviticus, you would realize that there were certain festivals where when you would bring your offering, you were allowed to keep that offering. And that offering was meant to be eaten as a feast and thanksgiving to the Lord. And so what would happen is you would, you would sacrifice this and then have a huge feast, right? So, so the idea is, is, is there's a lot of food and there's a lot of good food. That, that's the sense, really good food. Choice, choice food. Everything's wrapped in bacon, good food. Everything is wrapped in bacon and there's a lot of shrimp. Good food, right? So it's better to have a dry morsel in peace than having the best food with strife. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't it better to have a bad meal but be at peace than to have the best meal and have a fight? Right? I mean, that... Isn't that a benefit of righteousness when I'm living for the Lord and I'm striving to be at peace with all men as much as it depends on me and the Holy Spirit's working on me to become like Christ and being peaceful and joyful and loving so that I'm at this time and I'm acting appropriately and there's no strife and we're all kind of getting along? This, this is a benefit of righteousness. 
I often wonder, I often wonder if uh, some, of, some of the reasons that the gospel, when we tell our families and our friends about the power of the gospel, if they don't take it serious because many Christian families are in strife and not living righteously. I, I, wonder, I wonder what would happen if families started to be peaceful with one another and seek to strive to honor the Lord. I wonder what that type of testimony would look like. I wonder what kind of testimony would look like if the cops don't get called to the Christian's house for, during Thanksgiving. You, you think that has an impact on our neighbors about the validity and the power of the gospel to change people's lives so that they're at peace with their family? Of course. This is a benefit of righteousness. Now, there's another one. Go with me to verse 2. There's another benefit. There's this sense of successfulness. There's kind of a little narrative here. Notice what it says in verse 2. A servant who acts wisely. So, so this is somebody who's really kind of acting like a slave, but he's wise. He's righteous. He's discerning. Think of somebody like Joseph, right, working in, in, in the house of the Egyptian ruler, right? He was a wise man. He, he, he did what was right. He was, he was doing righteous things. Think of Daniel. Here's a wise servant, right? This one who acts wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. Here the word for shameful is not just doing something that the culture says is a bad thing. This is acting in a way that goes against God's word, goes against God's character. This is talking about sin. So here you have this idea that someone, they have a servant who's acting wisely and righteously. He is willing to let that person rule over everything, even his sons who are not meant to be trusted. Right? Then notice, notice the next phrase. It says, and will share in the inheritance among brothers. So not only is he going to rule, but he also gets part of the inheritance because he's trusted, because he didn't cause any shame to the, to the master. How does one get this? Does one get this by acting shrewdly and acting like a crook and embezzling money? No. This one showed up faithfully, was wise, was righteous, lived a righteous life, and people honor that. You, you want success? Live righteously. I'm not saying that this is going to happen because this, uh, this is not a promise. This is the principle. And the principle is wise, righteous people are always commended. It's always commended by employees to be righteous. Now notice this next one in verse 3. It says, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. So this is speaking of smelting of precious metals that under intense heat of precious metals, and whether it's a, a smelter's bowl or in a furnace, you would heat up those metals and the, all of the, the bad stuff inside of that metal would come up to the top and, and the person who's smelting it would remove that dross, okay? So that's, that's what's being talked about here, right? It's this, it's this idea of intense heat. This, this intense heat brings out the bad and it's removed, okay? So there's this refining process. So just like there's a refining process for silver and there's a refining process for gold, notice it says, but the Lord tests hearts. So in the same way. So what's another benefit? The other benefit is the Lord refines us. Isn't that an incredible benefit that God is refining us? 
He is constantly putting us to the fire to remove all of those bad impurities. Someone asked me what, why the last 18 months did, did God allow some of the stuff to happen. You want to know why? This passage tells us to refine us. He's bringing out bad attitudes. He's bringing out sinfulness. And, and, and the point is to bring those up so that he can remove those. That's why the last 18 months have happened in our life. So that we become more and more like Christ. Praise the Lord that he does this. Could you imagine if he didn't do this and we had to try to refine ourselves? It's impossible. I always think I'm right. There's nothing to refine with me. I'm already perfect, right? I need someone who is perfect to tell me, arrogant little Caleb, you're wrong. And then remove all of those impurities. The Lord does this. And he does this to a righteous person. And a righteous person appreciates this, looks for this, accepts this process, praises God in the midst of the process, realizing, I know what God's doing. I know that he's refining me. He has saved me so that I'm zealous for good works and may lead a life that looks like Christ. Now, there's some who are not refined. God does stuff, and they do the opposite. They, they don't look at their sins. They don't repent of their sins. They don't confess their sins. They're not yielding to the Spirit. They're not taking the lessons they're doing the opposite. And notice, notice what it says. It says, an evildoer listens to wicked lips. So, so the sense is in verse 3, a righteous person lists, listens to the testing of God and refines himself. It says, yes, you're right, God. You're right. I repent. I'm wrong. I'm changing. Yes. Help me. Guide me. Lead me. I'm listening. I'm here to follow. The evildoer rejects that. And what does he do? The evildoer doesn't listen to God. He listens to, literally, an evildoer listens to an evildoer's lips. That's probably the right translation. So he's listening to people who already agree with him and already have the same desire he does. Guess how that turns out? And then notice what it says next. A liar pays attention to destructive, to a destructive tongue. Meaning that somebody who only deals in lies, doesn't deal with the honesty of God's word, and deals with everything outside of God's word, pays not attention to God, but pays attention to those, to those tongues and to that speech and to that advice that leads them away from the Lord into destruction. Solomon now furnishes us with an example. Notice the example in verse 5 of somebody who's not refined by God. We need to, this person's not. It says, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Now that is a striking verse. Mocking the poor. And the question is, why mocking the poor is also mocking God? How, did, how does he make that connection? I think it's clear. I think any time that we mock another human being, because that person is a, bears the image of God. We're not taunting the person themselves, but the maker who put that image in that person. So when we taunt the poor, we make fun of the poor, we jeer at the poor, we say derogatory comments towards the poor, whether deserved or not, ultimately, what are we doing? Taunting our maker. 
And then, then notice this one. He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. There's a little, there's a little side note it's on mine that says, unless it's college football. I'm joking. No. Rejoicing at calamity is a bad thing. It, rejoicing at the misfortune of another person? Do you think God's happy with that? Of course not. Solomon says they will not go unpunished, meaning they will be punished. I think one of the great examples is found in the book of Ezekiel, where after the destruction of Jerusalem, all these nations that were surrounding Jerusalem started making fun of Israel because they didn't have any money. They started to rejoice at God's punishment of Jerusalem. And guess what God does? When I was a kid, we say, went off the chain, right? It's like a mad dog that you just go, no more chain, you better run. That's the sense. He goes against all of those people. And there's this tyrant in the book of Ezekiel that lasts chapters where he goes name by name of each of these nations saying, this is how you taunted my people. This is how you rejoiced at the downfall of Jerusalem. Guess what? I'm coming for you. And it's not going to be pretty. He says to Egypt, I'm going to turn your fertile land into a desert. People won't know about your civilization. Guess what? That happened. I think as believers, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful who we mock. My advice would be that we shouldn't mock anybody. Though, sometimes when you're like me, who likes a good joke, mocking does come easy. That's bad. Because ultimately, when I mock another person, I'm ultimately mocking God. I also shouldn't look at the downfall of another church, downfall of a heretic, of a faith healer, right? Which I think is disgusting. I shouldn't look at their downfall and say, praise the Lord, look at this, and run around and rejoice. That's not my place. That's not your place. The righteous know their place. We know the only reason I have anything good in my life is because the Lord is working on my heart. I am not intrinsically good. I'm not intrinsically righteous. I'm not intrinsically like Christ. I'm being made like Christ because God is refining me. There's a sense of humility here, isn't there? There's a sense of praying for the poor, praying for those who have experienced calamity. There's the sense of pleading with these people to live a righteous life and to follow Christ. But isn't this a benefit of righteousness, of accepting God's rebuke of us, receiving it, saying, yes, he's refining me. There's some bad stuff. Let's get rid of this stuff. There's a real benefit in that. Now, there's a last benefit Notice the last benefit found in verse 6. It says, children, our grandchildren, are the crown of old men. Now, I don't have grandchildren, but I know many grandparents. And I know that they love their grandchildren. And they're always talking about their grandchildren. In fact, even when I go back to my house in Wyoming and we go back to Chris's house in Wisconsin, the parents my parents and Chris's parents don't talk to us for the first 25 minutes. It's all about the grandkids. Guess whose pictures are on the wall? The grandkids, 
right? This is true, right? Grandparents love their, love their grandkids. But I don't think Solomon is just making an observation, grandparents love grandkids. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think what he's talking about is godly grandparents enjoy children. There's a special honor for grandparents when they see their grandchildren living for the Lord, right? They see children as a gift. It by itself is a gift. It's incredible. But their long age and their heritage that's coming is one that's from righteousness, it's not just an observation of grandparents. There's, there's the hint of righteousness. This comes from righteousness. There's, there's children and grandchildren because of a righteous living. And then notice, he kind of flips it. There's this invert, right? Notice the next one. And the glory of sons is their fathers. So grandparents glory in godly grandchildren, right? They glory in their grandchildren. They want to see their grandchildren live righteously. But children, guess what their glory is when their parents live righteously? Isn't that true? You have, I've heard numerous times people badmouth their parents because of some of the bad stuff their parents have done. And that's bad. I've also, heard parent, I've also heard kids who think it's an incredible blessing that their parents were righteous. And they talk much about righteous parents and a righteous father. So the sense is, here's this godly heritage. There's, there's righteousness in the family, and righteousness is a premium in the family. And, and everyone's striving to be righteousness, or to be righteous. And, and from this righteous heritage, there's grandparents are righteous, parents are righteous, grandchildren are righteous. There, there, there's this seeking to live for the Lord, and that's an incredible honor. This is an example of of a family that is taught to live well and not trying to make a good living. There's a difference there. One that says character is far more important. Righteousness, living for the Lord, is the most important thing. Not what's the best way for you to get into the best college. Now, that's important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about those things. But we should be first and foremost concerned about righteousness and living for the Lord first. What college that person goes to, that kid goes to, what they become after that, who cares? If they're righteous and living for the Lord, that is the most important thing. These are the benefits of righteousness. And as I said before, righteousness comes from the gospel, right? We learned in Titus The gospel teaches us to live a righteous life. Righteousness is is a product of the Holy Spirit. As we're spending time with the Lord and his word, as we're spending time praying, as we're spending time yielding to the spirit, this is is why Jesus saved us, for this, to live righteous lives, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And one thing that always has amazed me in, in the New Testament is how many books are written for believers, all of them. And all of them talk about the gospel. And talks about the gospel as being the root. Understanding the gospel. Listening to the gospel. Reminding ourselves of God's grace. This is a, a seedbed and a root for this righteous living. And we should constantly be thinking about the gospel. Because this is why he saved us. To be, be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. 
And this starts by a constant thinking of the gospel. I'm reminded of the passage in 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians eleven verse twenty three. Here, here's Paul talking to this church. This church got a lot of problems. One of their problems is even when they come together in worship, and part of that worship was what what's called the Lord's Supper. And notice what Paul says. He says, "For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread." And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then notice this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This symbol of the Lord's table is to remind us of the gospel to remind us of what god's doing he's transforming us right to live a righteous life we've seen that there's benefits to living a righteous life now notice verse 27 he says therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the lord but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I've grown, I grew up in a Baptist church my whole life. Every time I've heard this taught, it was like this is uh, a version of the Protestant uh, confessional booth, communion time. Like, before you get it, you're supposed to confess all of your sins, and if you forget one, then you're not digging it in a worthy manner. I do not think that's what Paul is necessarily saying. You have to understand that this church had a lot, of, a lot of problems. And one of those problems was a lack of love. And I think the sense was, if you think your life is okay and you're right with the Lord, and you just nonchalantly take this, because it's just a ritual, it's just part of life, that's taking it in a manner that's unworthy. And, and that's serious, because it's not taking the gospel serious and the implications of the gospel of a righteous life. There's indication, by the way, later on, that there's a sense where the rich people of the church would sit down and they would have servants who were also saved who would go to church, right? Really weird uh, thing to have, uh, a master and his slave in the same church. And what would happen is when it would come time for this, the master, the indication is that he would tell his slave, serve me now, serve me. And as, as he would serve, he would eat all the food, and there would be nothing left for the slave. And Paul would say, don't you have a house? Don't you, don't, can't you go home and eat? Do you have to do that here? Do you have no love for your fellow brother and sister, regardless of, of, of their station in life? And I think that is what Paul's referring to in a manner that's unworthy, is this obtuse, obvious sin that's taking place, and there's no concern for their brother, not out of love. It's not taking the gospel serious about its transforming power. Friends, this morning we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry that things are going over. Um, but as we take this, this is a time for us to remember that Jesus came down, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. This is a time for us to remember what he's done for us. He saved us. 
is a time for us to reflect on what the gospel does. It transforms us into the image of Christ. And as we take this, we need to make sure that we're taking this seriously, that we understand the implications. And if there is an obvious sin in your life of hypocrisy, and you're not taking this in a manner of seriousness, of thinking about the gospel, in, in, in a sense of, of, of thinking about what Jesus Christ has done, the implications of it, you're clearly living in sin, the advice here would be do not participate. But this is a time for us to think of the gospel that Jesus is saving us from our sin and that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And this is a time for us to proclaim the gospel to each other and think about the gospel and Jesus' transforming power. So this time I'm going to call Greg.